Welcome to Undiscarded Stories of New York, a podcast brought to you by the City Reliquary Museum and Civic Organization in Brooklyn. My guest today is Lynn Malazuski, Assistant Director of Archives and Collection at the Queens Museum, a place that is both an art museum and a museum that preserves and celebrates the unique history of its location. The Queens Museum is a place to work unlike anywhere else. It has a really unique situation wherein we are so a core of Flushing Meadows Corona Park. We get people in that perhaps are out for an entirely different purpose that day. Maybe they're just going for a walk. Maybe they just need to use the bathroom. And there's really an opportunity to bring people in who might not even be expecting an art experience. So it's really fun. We get quite a variation of human, tons of families, um, old, young, Queens natives, international travelers. So it's it's been really fun. What kind of things can you find in the archives of the Queens Museum? Flushing Meadows Corona Park was actually created for the sake of the 39 World's Fair. So we are a repository predominantly for the 1939 World's Fair and the 1964 World's Fair, both of which took place on our campus. And so oftentimes we have any number of items that people have either found in a basement or perhaps gone out of their way to collect from going to the fair or just being fascinated by the event overall. So we have a ton of photographs, we have documents, we have souvenirs of many shapes and sizes from a World's Fair garbage can to medallions or jewelry or pens and pencils that were produced for the fair. So it's definitely a bit of a grab bag. (laughs) We here at the City Reliquary love a grab bag. It's kind of our thing. Today we're talking about a small handful of objects that were once a part of the collection of the Queen's Museum. These pieces made their way into the Reliquary's permanent collection when the Queen's exhibit was being updated and these items were slated to be discarded. They are about a dozen tiny model buildings made of water plastic varying in size from a few inches long to a few centimeters. It's pretty funny because looking at them off of the model, they really just remind me of Monopoly pieces. They're kind of of that scale and also that detail, just kind of barely recognizable, but very much buildings or homes or, uh, you know, what seems to maybe be an apartment building. So Lynn, what are we actually looking at? What are these little pieces? These pieces are examples of buildings that were on the panorama. So the panorama is a room that is just under 10,000 square feet. So it's it's massive. It's like the size of, you know, a very generous movie theater or a small gymnasium. And within that space is a two-scale model of the entirety of New York City. So we see all five boroughs, we see bodies of water, we see all the bridges on the island itself that connect to all the boroughs as well. And it's something that's built to a scale of 1 to 1,200. So that means every inch is 100 feet. So the Empire State Building, 1,250 feet, is just 12 and a half inches. You know, looking at these pieces, I've seen the panorama. I don't remember them being so small because when you see the panorama, it it seems massive. And mm-hmm. I'm like, 
these pieces are tiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, it's definitely a, a some of its parts type thing. It allows you to feel very small and you don't really get the magnitude of the pieces because you just see the magnitude of the thing. Yeah, I definitely feel very similarly about that. Building such a detailed, accurate scale model of an enormous city like New York was a massive undertaking, especially in the mid-1960s when it was built. So the Panorama was built for the 1964 World's Fair. It was created by Lester Associates, which was a model-making firm in West Nyack, New York, and it took three years to make. Total buildings on the 64 model were about 839,000 buildings. There is no other model that is that depicts this expanse of land to such an accurate scale. When it was actually created, a multitude of research went into it. Um, I recently found the number, so 60,000 man-hours were spent on the panorama total. Wow. 20,000 of those were research only. So the builders mounted two different helicopter flights at two different points to get aerial photos of the entire city, of which we have a few of those in our collection, which is really exciting. They're gigantic, um, about four feet by six feet. They're just massive photos. You also had um, individuals from Lester Associates going around the city and taking what are known as oblique images. So it's images from the street that give you the angles and the details from the street of specific buildings. So, you know, for example, an entryway of, you know, Bryant Park. What does that actual sculpture look like? Is it a cylinder or is it a rectangle at the kind of like east side of it? There's this kind of abstract sculpture, for example. So people just going around and getting these real kind of nitty gritty, but also just iconic Details. Kind of like Google Maps before there was Google Maps. Quite literally, <laughs> yes. And then also they were using something called Sanborn maps, which are insurance maps. So you find out from that information the purpose of a building. So this was particularly important because of the different classifications, I guess, of different buildings. So there's actually also a color coding system to the panorama itself. So when you look at it, In a way, Midtown is very vibrant because you have a ton of unique buildings and there's lots of kind of elevation shifts. And you really see, because these buildings are so unique, they were made to be unique, to really be themselves. But for the majority of the rest of New York City, you really see how sprawling it is. You see how residential it is. So what you see are these different pockets of specific types of buildings. Lester worked with a multitude of different techniques to create these buildings. So it's actually really excellent, the variety you have here at the City Reliquary, because we see, for example, the most highly detailed is this kind of larger apartment building. And there were about 125 semi-unique buildings that were made. So what it is is fundamentally a block of wood carved by hand to look like the actual kind of shape of the building. And then you also see there are panels of paper that have the windows painted onto them. So like I said, not many buildings were done to this degree of detail. But then also this one is a group, is kind of a secondary group of buildings that doesn't have the paper, but its structure is unique. So these were hand carved out of wood to be a bit more indicative of of what they were. 
You also have a few that look to be like the plastic injection molded buildings. Actually, the majority of the buildings on the panorama are made in that fashion. About 500,000 buildings are made from that. So there's fundamentally a mold that is made for a specific type of building, say, you know, a residential home that is two stories. And it goes through fundamentally an assembly line and plastic is injected into it. And then it spits out pieces that are all uniform and that are all of the same shape. So buildings were not only color-coded, but they were also shape-wise coded. Um, So, you know, a brownstone, for example, a four-story traditional brownstone would have the same shape. You wouldn't necessarily see something as particular as the staircase that leads up to it or, you know, is there a fence in front of it or no fence? Those details were left off, but the actual structure itself was one of many that were kind of made by this injection mold process for the buildings that are the most ubiquitous in New York City. As with so many grand undertakings in New York City, the building of the panorama was spearheaded by the dictatorial city planner, Robert Moses. He made sure it had two qualities all his work is famous for. The first being the astounding attention to detail. So Moses and Lester both agreed on having a 1% margin of error, which the architects I speak to, even in thinking about model making, just find that absolutely obscene, but high standards, understandable. The other famous trait of Robert Moses that is on display in the panorama is his absolute commitment to celebrating the work of, well, Robert Moses. You know, there's real emphasis on things that Robert Moses was invested in, parks, which he had a massive hand in really bringing parks to New York City in the way we know them today. Highways and how how the grid and how certain areas developed by way of these highways, the bridges. Moses really had such a hand in many, many of the major bridges that were built, the Whitestone Bridge, um, the Verrazano Bridge. The Verrazano Bridge famously was not completed when the World's Fair opened, but he tossed it on there anyway just to make sure people knew that it was his doing, and it ended up being, you know, those are also the most, in a way, kind of beautiful elements of it. They're made of brass. They're all really custom from um, the original plans of the bridge. So you just see the detail. Um, You get to see some of the kind of cross-wicking of certain bridges. But yeah, I mean, bridges and having all the boroughs connected was such a big part of Moses's vision. And that was something that he really kind of um, staked, in a way, his reputation on. Also, public housing. Public housing is indicated on the panorama with red buildings. So when you look around, you see there are these pockets, again, of this public housing. And for Moses, this was a highly controversial and hotly contested shift that he initiated in the city, where you're thinking of you know, the tenements of the Lower East Side or, um, you know, groups and neighborhoods in the Bronx or deep Brooklyn that he was able to get highways through those areas because he claimed that they had urban blight. And he was able to enact a movement in the government of urban renewal and what he thought as kind of making these places less dense and making them, you know, more amenable to people going through them as opposed to what he considered to be, you know, 
in a way, disease of these areas, that the tenements were too tiny and landlords weren't taking care of them. And to take that space and rebuild it as these either um, public housing units or to fully just raise them and allow a highway to go through them. So you see that on the map, which is kind of amazing to really have that bird's eye view and of those changes, he was controversial because of yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. Well, and to be able to see what he thought to be a logic for getting people from Long Island through New York City to the mainland of the United States, um, which, of course, is not why any of us live in New York City. We love this place. We love the density. We love the gifts and the kind of spontaneity and the unpredictability of those places. And there was, I think, in his frame of mind, an emphasis of trying to calm things down, quote unquote, or, you know, make things more palatable for very much, you know, a white middle class, upper class citizen, which is what he was, you know, he loved cars. It's a good thing we didn't end up the way of L.A., where they dismantled, you know, the public transport in the 40s and 50s. Absolutely. Yep. And to think we even had more public transportation. So this is something that, you know, when I think about what the panorama can be in the future and how we can kind of engage with this model and to be able to make these comparisons and to see perhaps digitally or perhaps theatrically. Um, for example, the Never Built New York exhibition, which brought, in a way, utopian ideas of architecture that never happened in New York City and placed them on the model. And people were allowed to see, wow, this there could have been a highway uh, like through lower Manhattan. There could have been... Or a big park. <laughs> or a big park. There could have been a power plant on the west side um, to really look at things comparatively and be able to have this artifact to understand what occurred and what is occurring now and have that comparison, I think is incredibly informative and vital for how this, this incredible map of, of a scale that does not exist anywhere else in a degree of detail that does not exist anywhere else could be useful and engaged. So tell me a little bit about um, how the panorama was maintained. Yeah, absolutely. By way of it being something that was at the World's Fair, was meant to be, in a way, educational and informative, but also something that was meant to be updated. So the panorama was built by Lester Associates. Um, when it debuted in 64-65, it remained in that capacity for those two years. It was not touched over the course of the fairs. And... After the fairs closed, it was actually updated just about every year in 66, 67, 68. The model originally was used as a city planning tool. It was very much envisioned that this model would be changed out and it would be even at one point predictive. And although there is a room that is custom made for it, it was not necessarily assumed that it would stay in the New York City building. So it is split into 272 pieces. So you can't really tell from what it is right now because obviously we've smoothed those things over. We want it to be an <laughs> illusion. Exactly. Um, but originally, with it being composed in these pieces, it could be transported to City Hall for a presentation. It could be sent to an architectural firm working on something like you could imagine 
the reinvigoration of Times Square that occurred over, you know, the last few decades or Battery Park's kind of revolutions through different forms and different um, manifestations of either leisure, residential area, etc. So it was really meant to be something that was a functional city planning tool. So with each update, there was a requirement to look into these maps again. And also, of course, consultations with New York City archives, municipal archives, independent um, and city kind of construction firms as well. There was a hope that plans could even be shared with the maintainers of the panorama to actually keep it moving, keep it updated. But that ultimately did not end up happening. So quite a bit of time to really get the update going. So when the recession hit in the 70s, there wasn't really much activity as far as updating. And that picked back up ever so slightly in the 80s. There was a great, great curator that was working at the Queens Museum. Uh, his name was Mark Miller. And he really took a stronghold on the panorama and the World's Fair content. So around 88, 89, we see an initiative that he started to get architecture firms and designers to actually contribute their own buildings. So, of course, they would have to build it to scale, but, you know, they they would bring us the building, and it was something that was donated to our collection. So those elements were placed on the map. Really amazing, but of course, I mean, I, I did not see the panorama in this era of it, um, but I can imagine, despite it being updated, perhaps it was a little inconsistent. Perhaps it was a little obvious when certain things were very new and certain things were very old. Dusty and old. <laughs> yeah, so, and not to say that it wasn't clean, which is even something we still do twice a year to just actually clean and dust very, very delicately the entire model. I've heard it's quite a challenge. Oh, yes, and it takes quite some time, and it's quite, um, yeah, it's it's just slow and bizarre to see a human on the model, you know, it's just, it it pulls the scale in a very different way. Your brain doesn't quite compute for two weeks while it's occurring. Um, but these are things that we usually do during a closed period at the museum, so we don't disturb anyone's, anyone's illusion of their New York City in their pocket. Um, so, okay, so 80s updated it, and by way of there being a bit more kind of momentum behind the model, we were able to get city funding to completely update the model in the 90s. So we took the model out in, I want to say, the end of 1991. It was worked on for two years, and then it debuted in 1994. So that remains the model that you see in front of you today. What you see when you go into that room is January 1, 1992. So just a fun little time capsule. Has there been talk about reopening the panorama and updating it? Because so much of the city has changed. So much. So, so, so much. The World Trade Center is still in the 1992. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And we talk about this constantly with visitors. We talk about this amongst ourselves in moments, of course. To think of the 1992 renovation where about 350,000 buildings were added that renovation cost $2 million. So wow. to think of, exactly, and that brought us up to about 895,000 buildings. So to think of how many more buildings and to think even that 
many of those buildings would likely need to be custom buildings is something that on a city budget is very difficult to kind of gather. But I think also, too, we're really focusing right now on the conservation of the thing because these materials, for example, for being maybe kind of revolutionary in the 90s... So old now. ...are so old and so brittle. And to maintain the longevity of this piece just even for the next 50 years, that's that's a significant conservation budget. And we also do feel like, you know, very similar to how you brought up Google Maps, just, you know, we all have access to these tools now. Our focus is really thinking about how we can use technology and how we can use, you know, different theatrical modes of artist interventions or, you know, filmic interventions. I mean, the things you can do with projectors, holograms, 3D renderings at this point are just mind-blowing. And that allows you to have, again, an experience that is very unique to being in that space, but also something that still allows you to keep this model as a point of comparison and something that you can kind of build on without actually building on it (laughs) in a funny way. So, you know, it's interesting because when it was created, it was such like a cutting edge, like this is such a modern thing. And now it's become not not obsolete, but it's become sort of now we have to preserve this moment in time. Definitely. Well, and I think too, the the modes, I mean, the difficulty of finding in a way a model maker, but also like model makers get at me. But, you know, a lot of people are working in 3D printing now, which is excellent, but much shorter lifespan. And could we update it and do all 3D printing? Sure. But would we really be required to update it then every two years because the model is disintegrating in front of our very eyes more than it is already right now? Possibly. So to just think of ways that, you know, and also, of course, we're a contemporary art museum. So we want to think of ways that we can engage artists, ways that we can engage Um, you know, builders and thinkers and architects and planners of the future. And is it the best to update this model every year and throw millions of dollars at that? Or is it amazing to kind of prompt an artist to think about how they might make a hologram of different neighborhoods on the city or to think about, you know, someone doing a dance performance on the panorama because we've stabilized it and it's able to be walked on by two dancers like that that could be amazing yeah Yeah. exactly well I have to ask have you ever touched the panorama (laughs) I have touched the panorama I do have the discreet honor of being (laughs) able to um, walk on it if needed you know sometimes we have to take photos of it sometimes we need to check in on you know, maybe a building that looks like it fell over. We have to stick it back up. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really great. There's a particular choreography that's needed for the panorama if you're ever on it, because it is so delicate. So, you know, just of course, walking with very balletic, delicate, delicate steps, being very gentle with anything. And of course, making sure you don't wear bell bottoms on the day that you're there. There are certain areas that are very tight um, because you're mostly walking through the waterways. So it ends up being, yeah, just a very odd 
experience to be a gargantuan on <laughs> the city of New York. Yeah. yeah. How does it feel for you? What What do you feel like when you're on there? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it's it's a pretty oddly spiritual experience to be on it because it does it does just feel like this thing that has seen so much right it's it's seen so much so many people have seen it it's been such a such an icon in people's memory that to just be on it has a very different feel than being around it because it's steeped in all this memory it's just it's it's kind of dripping with the past and it's also something that is very conflicted still and there's this absolutely bonkers thing that happens when people get into the panorama space that you just kind of get a little dizzy and it becomes something that you recognize but also don't recognize because of the scale and perspective and you know being able to see here at the city reliquary these pieces that remind you what it is in a way that our experience of New York City is so much about people, is so much about, you know, your favorite bodega or going to see your friends or walking in the park. And, you know, this representation is all of us in a very real way. And and it's funny, people, people just, it's so easy to lose track of what things are that you see every day, you know, when you look at this model. When you get close to it, it's just, you know, it's what we see here at the City Reliquary. It's little rectangles of wood or plastic. It's not, in a way, necessarily the most captivating (laughs) on-the-ground, street-level experience. But there is something that just kind of is magnetic about it. It just draws you in and you want to be in it. This has been Undiscarded Stories of New York, a podcast brought to you by the City Reliquary Museum and Civic Organization in Brooklyn, New York, in partnership with Citizen Racecar. My name is Tanya Muhammad, and I produce this show in collaboration with David Hoffman, who edits the stories. Post-production and original music by Jose Miguel Baez. Contributing producer, Jacob Ford. Production manager, Gabriela Montequin. Outreach manager, Sarah Shalantano. And a special thanks to Harit Takwamu. Be sure to visit the Queens Museum in Flushing Meadows Corona Park. In addition to the panorama, they have a range of thought-provoking exhibits and events taking place throughout the year. And it's amazing to walk around afterwards and see the iconic structures still standing from the World's Fair. To find out more, go to queensmuseum.org. To learn more about the artifact in this episode, check out undiscarded.org and be sure to follow at City Reliquary on Instagram for facts and pictures. Head to cityreliquary.org to hear about the museum's mission, exhibits, and events. If you enjoyed this episode of Undiscarded, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a review, and help spread the word. There are so many more stories to tell. 